0: Amen. Well, church family, I want you to for a moment imagine with me that in coming to church this morning, you left extra early because you were going to have to drive all around town or perhaps walk and try to make sure that there was no one tailing you and and when you arrived here eager and and hungry to be with the people of God to to express your love for the Lord Jesus in worship and to hear the reading and unpacking of His Word. As as you arrived here, you walked into a place uh, with no air conditioning, cramped, little shoulder space, seated on likely either dirt or stone floors. But with hungry hungry and desperate hearts, and you, and you did that today to get here because your name is on a list. Because I want you to imagine with me living in a day and time where every time there is an election, whether it be national, state or local, some government officials come to town, and when you and you're required by law to, to go to these elections, they're not going to ultimately matter, but you're gonna to go to these elections, and when you go there, you're gonna check in. You're gonna get your stuff to vote, but before you vote, you have to enter into a little room, and you have to light a candle before a picture of the president. And when you light that candle, in the presence of governing officials, you have to make the statement, the president is Lord. Now, you, you, you don't believe that in your heart, but it's what you have to do, and then you proceed to go vote and, and, and go out. And when you do that, you get a, a essentially a check by your name, but, but you've chosen as followers of Christ, you can declare no one to be Lord, even if it's just a civil act, because that is an act of idolatry and rebellion against the only Lord, Jesus. And because you've not gone and done that, your name is now on a list, you are now guilty of a federal crime, one at which at any point they could catch you and prosecute you, and in prosecuting you, not even the death penalty is off the table. And so you come hungry, you've watched as these policies have slowly but surely eliminated the great preachers you once listened to, who encouraged you, who, who built you up. Gone are the days for some of you in the room of the Billy Grahams and W.A. Chriswells. For others of you in the room, the Adrian Rogers and Chuck Swindolls. For maybe others of you in the room, the, the Matt Chandlers, fill in the blank. They're, they're gone. They've been arrested, imprisoned, and likely killed. And as you show up today to worship the Lord, I happened to pull out a letter of encouragement to you from Jimmy Draper, Dave, our Winter Renewal. My granddad, who you thought was long gone, but you find out he's actually just been exiled in his old age in an unbeknownst island in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Now I give you that to try to imagine, not to come up with something to make you chuckle or some story. But that is precisely the situation that the early church at the end of the first century in what is then Asia Minor, today modern day Turkey, the situation they find themselves in. Emperor Domitian is on the throne. They have no political representation. Persecution is around them. They're required when the, the emperor's train rolls into town to go light some incense and declare before an image of the emperor that he is Lord. If they don't, it's a crime punishable even by death because it is doing two things, essentially trying to create a greater political unity throughout the empire while also specifically targeting that which is the greatest threat, that of Christianity who bows before no Lord save Jesus Christ. And it's to these early churches that a letter was received from the Apostle John, now well into his eighties, exiled on Patmos. And it's to that letter that I ask you to turn, church family, to Revelation chapter one. If you don't know where Revelation is, I can. great news about it is just go to the very back. Very back. Page numbers are on the screen for you if you're using a pew Bible. Now before you get terrified, we're not going through the whole book of Revelation on Sunday morning, but we are going to spend the next nine weeks walking through the first three chapters while spending some of our time on Wednesday nights looking at the rest of it. So there's a shameless plug to come to Wednesday night Bible study. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, listen to what it says, church family. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent it and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed or keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now unlike Daniel and a lot of the passages we cover, you don't have to walk through the whole passage to, to understand what the point is. The point of the whole passage is actually right here at the very beginning. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. You can probably pick up where we get our English word apocalypse from it. But unlike our English word, when we hear the word apocalypse and it may conjure images in your mind of a nuclear fallout, of chaos, of turmoil, the the Greek word apocalypsis means something which is fully revealed from one who is divine to one who is human through supernatural means. So when we say the revelation, there is something that God is revealing, it says, of Jesus Christ. Is it about Jesus or is it the revelation Jesus is revealing? Well reality is, this is something that Jesus, God Himself, is making known to the Apostle John, so it's the revelation from Jesus, but the whole book is all about Jesus. It's about Jesus being the victor, Jesus being the king, Jesus being the one who returns to set all things right. So it's the revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, which God gave him, and did you catch this? To show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then at the end of verse three, for the time is near, unlike how Daniel ended last week. Daniel, these are for the end times. Conceal it, write it down, seal it up. The times are coming here, John's told, write it down, because the times are now. The times are soon to arrive, and it's, it's written, here's, here's what's going on. God has communicated, God has given a revelation to Jesus Christ to communicate to those who are his people, his bond servants. It was, it was communicated by the angel of God, the official divine messenger of God, to John, John the apostle, who is an eyewitness, an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount, an eyewitness of the actual death and burial of Jesus, an eyewitness of the empty tomb, an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus, an eyewitness of the ascension, and now an eyewitness of what is coming, of how the story of history comes to its conclusion. So when you hear that God communicated it, through, through a divine messenger, his angel, to an eyewitness, he, he communicated it to someone who's trustworthy, who wrote down what he saw, not what he imagined, not what could be, not a, not a fictional tale, but saw what is real, saw what is actual, who wrote it down. Now why do all this? Because here's the point, God wants to make certain, God wants to make certain that those who are his people, bought with the precious blood of Christ, Know with absolute certainty and resolve who he is, what he's up to, what's going to be, and that in knowing we would be blessed. Did you catch that? The revelation. You don't reveal something unless you want to make something known. God wants to make sure his people aren't in the dark. He wants to make sure something is known, and that in his people, and those of us who've been saved by grace through faith, in in knowing it, in heeding it, that we would experience the fullness of His blessing, favor, divine favor. What is it that He wants us to know? Well, look back with me now at verse 4. John, remember this is the Apostle John to the seven churches that are in Asia. We'll see those churches in a a few weeks, but they were on a postal route that began and ended in, in the port city of Ephesus. He says, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes on the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Let it be. And then Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So right off the bat, here's what Scripture tells us. There is something that God wants to make certain His people know and are, are clear about and that in us knowing it and heeding it, there is a blessing that flows from it. Well, what is it God wants to make sure we know? Well, well, right here in chapter one, we'll see more of this next week. God wants to make certain that you and I really know who He is, what He's done, what He's doing. Do You see, who, who is He? Look what it says, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. This speaks to God's eternality, God has no beginning, not has no end. He has always been God, He will always be God. Technically, He exists outside of time, which is why you see it's not to Him who was and is and is to come, it's to Him who is. And then from our perspective, who was and who is to come. This this reminds us of Daniel 9, the, the Ancient of Days, another name for God the Father as he takes his throne, that the eternal God, the ancient of days, is the one who sits on the throne of power for all of creation, seen and unseen. Here we see specifically when it says to him who is and who was and who is to come, a reference to that first first person of the Godhead whom we know as Father. And then it says this, grace and peace to you from the seven spirits who are before his throne or the sevenfold spirit. Now, what does that mean? What's, that's a strange phraseology and, and some have speculated, but simply point, if, if we pull from references out of Isaiah and references out of Zechariah, it becomes rather apparent when, when he says the, the seven spirits who are before his throne, or, or you heard me maybe when I read through it say the sevenfold spirit who is before the throne, he's referencing none other than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God Himself. So, what's up with the seven? Well, this is Revelation, and in Revelation there is a lot of imagery and symbolism. The number seven is that number of perfection, to say the the perfect Spirit who is before His throne. Well, Scripture tells us who the perfect Spirit before the throne of God is. It's none other than the Spirit of God who searches the heart and mind of God. We know Him as the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit who is there before the throne of God the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in using the term seven, about to, writing to seven churches is also the Spirit who's before the throne of the God is the Spirit who is fully present with each and every one of God's churches. Do you realize the Holy Spirit's here today, church family? He's in this room. He's moving. He's stirring. He's already prayed the perfect will of God for us according to Romans. He is actively working and and moving and touching each of our hearts in accordance with God's will, encouraging, convicting. Not only is He fully present with each and every church, but He indwells and lives within each and every individual believer. He's not just here around us, for every one of us who are in Christ at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit, God Himself, the third person of the Trinity, entered into us. Our body is His temple according to Scripture, and He sealed us. That idea of a seal is something that can never be broken. He won't leave. The Holy Spirit of God is living within us to empower, to encourage, to convict, to bring to remembrance the words of God. And how incredible is that? The one, the perfect spirit who searches and knows the mind and will of God, who is before the throne of the Almighty, is the one who lives in you and me if you're in Christ. Leading us, guiding us, empowering us. Ooh. We've seen Father, we've seen the Spirit. Well, there's another person of the Trinity, the Son. And from Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. Now look what it says, church family. In the Greek, it first says, The witness the martyrios we get the word martyr from it the idea for, of a martyr being that one who is so faithful in their witness to Christ they experience even death but literally it just means to witness the witness and then the faithful understand church family scripture is clear Jesus is the witness of God it says in hebrews 1 he is the perfect revelation and the final revelation of God to man you say i want to know what's god's like i've got an easy answer for you look at jesus because Jesus is God. He's the perfect revelation of God. He is the faithful revelation of God. There's no aspect of how Jesus, if you read the gospels and see who Jesus is, there's no aspect of who Jesus is that's not completely in line with God because he is the faithful witness. He is the faithful one. He's faithful to his word. He does what He says. He's faithful to His work. He was faithful to live the life we do not live. He was faithful to die the death we deserve. He was faithful to rise from the grave just like He promised. He is faithful and true. It's one of His names according to Revelation 19. He is the faithful witness. Not only that, He is the firstborn of the dead. Well, how so? Well, Jesus is the only person who has experienced death, risen from the grave, with a transformed, glorified body, never to experience death again. Every other person you see in Scripture who experienced resurrection, take Lazarus. The bummer for him is he had to die twice. But Jesus, no, he's the firstborn, he's, he's, a, he's a, if you will, a, a new kind of humanity in Christ. But that's not fully what firstborn from the dead means. Firstborn is a title of prominence. It means that of those who are resurrected from the dead, he is the firstborn, he is the rightful heir of all things. He is the rightful ruler, the rightful recipient. The only reason you and I are heirs and have an inheritance is because he is the firstborn. And just to be clear, firstborn does not mean that Jesus was created, it's simply a statement of prominence. He says he's, and we'll see in a moment, he's, why he can't be created because he has always been and always will be, he is God. Says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. As you and I look out on the world today, the truth of the matter is there is no ruler in this world who has any more power than the one who is sovereign has allowed them. None. Now it doesn't mean that Jesus in his sovereignty has specifically put every ruler on their throne. Some he's put there and some he's allowed as consequences of decisions that we make as humans. But what is true is there is no one, there is no ruler in the world that sits on their throne apart from God allowing it and specifically from Jesus allowing it because he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He alone is sovereign. Not only that, but look look what else it says about who he is. Drop down with me, look at... The end of verse 6, to him be the glory and dominion forever. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one worthy of all glory and dominion because of who he is and what he's done. He's the only one who is worthy. But keep going, look what he says in verse 8. One, he says, I am. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that the personal name of God? Exodus 3:14. Yes. Why can Jesus claim I am? Because he is. He is God. I am not only, what is the I am? I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. You and I might recognize it as from A to Z. He is the beginning and He is the end. He is the beginning of the story of humanity. It's by the word, it's by Jesus that all creation came into being and He is the end. He returns. He judges. He sets things right. He is the beginning and the end. Not only that, he is he who is, who was, and who is to come. Oh, wait a minute, isn't that what the Father said? Yes. That's why Jesus can't be created. As John wrote in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word was face to face with God, meaning the Father and the Son, two distinct persons, one God. But Jesus has always been God and always will be God. There is no time when Jesus has not been God. He is and who was and who is to come. Not only that, it says the Almighty, the Pentocrator, the all-powerful, the omnipotent one, someone who has absolute control and influence over all reality. It's in contrast to what the Roman emperors would claim, which is Autocrator, which meant one's own master. The emperor claimed to be one's own master, but Jesus claims to be master of all. It's just who He is, but it's not just who He is that we're to be aware of, it's what He does. Look back with me at verse verse 5 in the middle, to Him who loves us, to Him who loves us. Do you realize every one of us in this room right now, did you catch? That's a present tense. God loves you, period. God loves you. No matter if your day was wonderful or if your day has been terrible, no matter if your weekend was the greatest of your life or if this weekend was horrible, no matter if you've walked well or if you've shamed the name of Jesus, Jesus loves you. He loves you. And what did his love cause him to do for us? Look what it says. To him who loves us, and released us to free us. It's it's a word that means to free a captive from bondage who released us from our sins by his blood. In this the love of God is manifest, that he makes people feel good. No, that's not what 1 John says. It says in this the love of God is made clear, that even though we did not love him, he loves us and he sent his son to be the propitiation. Jesus' love for us is such that he lived the life we couldn't live. He went to that cross to die the death we deserve. He bled his own blood, bearing the the price for sin and, and, and our rebellion, did you catch there? Freed us from our sins, me. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Raise your hand. Guilty as charged. It's me, it's my sin that put him there. And on that cross, making payment for sin, for all of my rebellion against the character of God, for all of my belief that this world can satisfy, for all of my desire to find identity in the things and people of this world, for all of my sin, Jesus paid the price, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a spotless lamb, according to 1 Peter, with the most precious substance in all of creation, the only substance that can wash away the stain of sin, the only substance that can come to me, bound by death to the chains of sin, and free me because he took my place. Why? For God so loved the world. Now, here's the reality. I'd say God loves you. He does love you, but there's there's a clear reality in here. If you are not saved by grace through faith, if you have not been reconciled through faith to the person of Jesus Christ through what He's done, God does love you, but you are outside of a place where you will ever know and experience that love. And the good news is there's a way to, to come inside and experience and know His love. It's by responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are, in fact, a sinner separated from God, and if you will truly trust and recognize that Jesus is Lord, and you will trust who He is and what He's done, fully God and fully man, paid the price on your behalf, if you will trust Him in faith, He will save you by grace. Now, for those of us who've already come to that point and been saved by grace through faith, church family, He loves you. And you and I have the ability to experience and know His love, now we may live in some ways that seem to dull our experience of it, but it doesn't ever diminish the intensity of His love for us, church family, on your worst of days. You remember that when you see the cross, the cross is a reminder that Jesus does in fact love you period you don't determine the intensity of His love. He loves you completely, perfectly and fully and if He loves you enough to go to the cross He can never love you any less. He loves us. Well, What else does He do? He made us. He didn't just free us from sin but He made us to be a kingdom. He made us to be royal, priests to His God and Father. You may say, well what's, what's the deal about priests? He's consecrated us. He's set us apart. He set us apart, it says in 1 Peter, to be a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Church family, priests have a special calling in the Old Testament. It was the priests who ministered to the Lord in the temple amidst his presence. Church family, every one of us in Christ, God has made us. He's given us an identity and a purpose to be his priests. We're the ones who minister. Two, we worship, we minister through our worship, we have a special calling, every one of us in Christ. Do you realize that? Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have a special calling to God. If you're in Christ, you have a special calling to God, a royal calling, to be a kingdom of priests whose life are not about me, myself, and I, but about living a life That gives to God the ministry of worship because he alone is worthy. Not because he needs it. We're not ministering to him because he is in need. He has no needs. No, we minister to him because he's worthy. He wants us to be sure, church family, of who he is, of what he's done. What has he done? He loves us. He's freed us from sin, from the consequences of sin, from the power of sin. Not only that, but he's made us. He's given us an identity and a purpose, a kingdom of priests. But what else is he doing? Catch what it says. Verse 7, behold He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. That should instantly ring a bell. Daniel 9, what did Daniel see? The Ancient of Days, take a seat on the throne. The Ancient of Days, judge the Antichrist. And and the question comes, well, who, who will rule the world? And what did he see? One like a son of man coming on the clouds. The pillar of cloud in the Old Testament The cloud being a sign of God's glory. The clouds in which Jesus ascended into heaven. And what did the angels say to the disciples? Just as you have seen him go up, so he is coming back. That there will come a moment when the trump will sound and every eye will look up as only, as only God could make happen and people will look up and Jesus will be coming in glory, the Son of Man on the clouds, the rightful ruler of this world, returning as victor, as king to set all things right, to, to vindicate His people, to, to free His people from the wickedness of this world to to judge evil and wickedness and unrighteousness, to, to usher in his kingdom forevermore, which is why it says that the tribes of the earth will mourn because it'll be at that time that so many who have rejected Jesus look up and realize the irreversible damage of their choice to reject the Savior. Who loves them, who died for them, but whose offer of salvation they rejected. Church family, God wants us to know with certainty today who he is. He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the one who is victor. He is the Alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. No one will outlast him. No one can outmatch him, and he wins. He is returning. God wants us to be certain. So that in being certain, we know the fullness of His favor and blessing, church family, as we live in the last days. Because according to Scripture, all the days post-Jesus resurrection are now the last days, the final era, before the end. The triune God Almighty wants us to know who He is and what He's doing so we might experience the fullness of His blessing and favor. And to help us do it, He He revealed it to John, who wrote it down say, well, pastor, this is wonderful news. How do I know the, how do I experience the fullness of his blessing and Savior? Well, look back with me. It tells us, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things written. Now, notice what he says. There's a condition. Do you want to know you want to experience the blessing? Blessing is the one who reads. Now, read is interesting because you and I naturally go read. That means I pull out my Bible and I read it. Actually, no, that's not what it means. you catch? Blessed is he who read it and those who hear. The idea of reading is the idea of reading the scripture aloud. Who would have read the scripture aloud in the gathering of the early church? The pastor. So when he said, blessed is the one who reads, blessed blessed is the pastor who, who opens up this letter and who reads it and explains it rightly, correctly. You say, well, what does that matter for me? Pastor, you're the one up there. I'm stuck listening to you. I'm out here. Well, let me tell you what it means. It means don't listen to bad preaching. There is no blessing listening to those who pollute the word of God with their own opinions, who twist the word of God to capitulate to cultural swims. Listen to good, God-fearing preaching that, that seeks to tell you this is what God means. Remember, scripture doesn't mean what we want it to mean, it means what he wrote it to mean. Listen to good preaching. Not only that, he says to the one who hears. That would be the idea of you and I reading, whether you're listening audibly, whether you're reading. It's, the, the word hears is, refers to one who listens with the intention to know, to love, to worship. Maybe you listening to me preaching it. Maybe you listening to the Bible read aloud. Maybe you listening as you get alone with the Lord and read his word. Church family, understand if my life has little to do with the Word of God. If I keep myself starved of intaking scripture in my personal life, if my Bible just sits on a shelf to collect dust, you are robbing yourself of experiencing the fullness of His favor and blessing. Because it's hard to know what He wants you to know when you won't read where He wrote it. But it's not just, making sure you're intaking solid preaching and teaching. It's not just making sure you're, you're reading and hearing the Bible. Notice he says to heed, to keep, to observe, to obey. Never forget, we don't memorize verses. We don't read scripture so we can go on some Bible trivia show and win a life, you know, a year's supply of Adventures and Odyssey cassette tapes from the 90s. We engage we seek to understand his word so that we love him that we follow him that we obey him church family it is God's intention that we do something with his word he intends for us to walk by faith on it to trust what it says to rest in the fact that he is and he does And specifically when it says to heed this word of prophecy is revelation, understand that would mean for these churches heeding a word where they have to actually believe He really is who He says He is. He really does what He says He does. It means heeding a word that for each one of these churches we'll see in two weeks is going to be a word of God, of Jesus, evaluating how faithful of a church they are. Some get some good words. Some get some tough words. Heeding it means taking both. Heeding the word, of, the word of this prophecy is gonna mean heeding a word that says the church suffers and his people experience hardship. It's gonna heed a word where the church, where his people are persecuted. It's gonna heed a word where there's martyrdom of believers. It's gonna mean heeding a word where there comes a day when it seems like evil really does win means heeding a word. We're at that worst moment where it seems as a Satan-empowered ruler has conquered the world and there is no hope, the trump will blare. The heavens will part. And descending on clouds of glory riding a white horse will be Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the almighty victor, Jesus himself will descend. And if you remember from Daniel, he'll defeat the enemy's power with a breath. Judgment will commence. The wicked will be punished. The righteous will be saved, rescued, vindicated, rewarded, validated. And eternity will be ushering in. It means heeding. This word is written down. And church family, understand, as we heed, as we hear the word, as we... Interpret the word rightly as we apply it correctly, as we seek to be faithful. God's gonna call us in these passages to, to an overcoming faithfulness in the midst of hardship, as we seek to be faithful in the midst of whatever it is. You, you won't do it if you're not certain of who He is and what He does, but as, as we seek to be faithful, we experience the fullness of His blessing, which in this case, did you catch what John said? Grace and peace. Grace, that undeserved, unmerited favor of God. That has nothing to do with your performance as his child. That has nothing to do with what you can offer him. You can't offer him anything. You can never do enough work to get it, earn it. Grace. Grace which is sufficient to make you the follower of Christ. God wants grace which saves you, grace which refines you, grace which will complete the work and glorify you. Grace which makes you sufficient to be a husband or wife, mom or dad living in this day. Grace which makes you sufficient to go to the office where you work and stand for Jesus. Grace which is sufficient. Peace. And by the way, you can't have peace if you don't have grace. Peace comes out of grace. Peace which guards our heart and minds above all comprehension. Peace. Peace which when you have peace with God, you've been made in Christ Jesus. You have the security and safety of knowing it doesn't matter on your worst day. Your relationship with God is safe because the peace of God is what made that relationship. Peace, wholeness, harmony with others who have peace. Peace, wholeness, harmony, the ability to have peace even as I am sanctified and have to come to know my own broken self. Peace. Do you realize, church family, he is saying that in the midst of of hard trying times, it is possible to live a life that is abounding in the, with the grace of God and is overflowing with the peace of God. Signs of his blessing and favor which we will experience in full only. and I catch in full, because if you're in Christ, you've got the blessings. If you're in Christ, you've got the grace and peace. It's not a matter of you possessing it. you got it at the moment of salvation. I said experience in full because as a believer in Christ, you and I can live in such a way that we will truly experience and know it, or we can live in such a way where we are driven to relate to God on the basis of our performance, where we are driven and tossed to and fro by the anxieties of this world, Church family, do you realize it is possible to live a life abounding and overflowing in the grace and peace of God, to experience that blessing, but it will come as we read, hear, and heed the word of who He is and of what He's done. And by the way, that's what we now come to the table to celebrate this morning the person and work of Jesus Christ. In a moment, I'm going to offer an invitation, a time of response. Paul tells us clearly in the New Testament that before we come and partake of uh, of the bread and the cup, remembering Jesus' body which was broken, his blood which was poured out, that we examine ourselves. In this time of invitation, part of that may be just in your life as a believer. Lord, is there something you convicted me from this morning I need to confess before I come? Is there something I need to remember that you really do love me and paid the price for me? And how does that change the... the the experience of hope that I have as I walk out this morning, do business with God in this invitation. This table is only for those who have come to faith in Christ. If you have never responded to Jesus Christ uh, and been saved by him, you cannot. We ask that you do not partake of this table out out of safety for you according to scripture. But perhaps today God's stirring your heart and you say, I need to know Jesus because I need to know life filled with grace and peace. During this invitation, you can come down to one of us as pastors. We'd be happy to share with you and talk with you. What a great day for you to come to know the Lord. Church family, as we come to this time of invitation, I invite you, allow the Spirit to examine ourselves in this time of invitation before we come to the table. Let me pray. Jesus, we look to you. You are faithful, you are true, you are righteous, you are Lord. And we look to you. Jesus, as we come to your table, may we not be guilty of living life in such a hurry or or somehow of, of, of just getting past the simple fact that for those of us, myself and my brothers and sisters in this room who have been saved by your grace, Jesus, you saved us. How incredible. So Jesus, as we come to this table, may we remember and may you be worshiped. Holy Spirit, find us responsive to you. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray Amen.